The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. To welcome Tim Cartwright up here this morning. I'm a, f- a big fan over there. That was, that was nice. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, yes, my name is Tim, and uh, we'll be looking at Acts 22. We're covering a big chunk of Scripture, so it's actually Acts 22 all the way through 2310. We won't be reading every single verse for the sake of time, but uh, we are going to highlight a number of things in here and get into some other Scriptures as well. So last week, uh, we left Paul at the end of Acts 21, arrested in the temple having to be literally carried away by the soldiers so the angry mob would not rip him to shreds. So this is where Paul is at. He's, he's actually had multiple attempts on his life. There's an angry mob that wants to tear him apart. And so the Roman tribune and his soldiers arrest him for his own safety and really to find out what the, all the fuss is about. So uh, we see Paul in the custody of the Roman tribune. This Roman tribune is mentioned a lot here. Uh, he's kind of like a, a Roman general. He uh, traditionally had about 700 to 1,000 men under him. And so he was, one of his jobs was to kind of keep the peace as well. Uh, and so you had Jewish people living alongside Roman people. And so this was his job. So he arrested Paul. And uh, so Paul desires here to give a defense to the people at the end of chapter 21. He begs the tribune for an opportunity to speak, and it's granted. And the crowd was curious to hear what he had to say. So if you look at Acts 22, and and a good chunk of that chapter is Paul sharing his story, sharing his testimony with the people. And the crowd is a crowd, obviously, that was irate, wanting to kill him. So it was interesting what happened. So first, Paul goes to the tribune and speaks in Greek to the tribune. And the tribune, this Roman tribune, is pretty impressed that he could speak Greek and so he's, he's pretty blown away. And then Paul transitions actually into Aramaic, uh, the common language of the people. And this further gets their attention. If you look uh, in the beginning of Acts 22, you'll see that this actually grabs their attention and, and has them listening uh, intently. And so he addresses them. He addresses them as brothers and fathers in verse 1. And throughout this passage in Acts 22, you're going to notice Paul... Um, identifying himself with the Jewish people that he's talking to. He's breaking down their walls. He's breaking down uh, what they think is separate between him and them and helping them to see he knows what they're going through. And so here in verse 1, he addresses them as brothers and fathers. And then he goes on to tell them about his experience of conversion, this powerful experience he went through. And the first account of this you can find back in Acts 9, uh, where it's described how Paul came to faith. But he goes on to say exactly what happened to him. He was a man who was viciously opposed to Jesus, viciously opposed to Christianity. And he made it his mission to go and arrest Christians and to kill Christians and to persecute Christians. He goes on to even say in this passage that he was holding the coats for the people that were stoning Stephen, the first martyr. And so he addresses them in a way to help them understand, look, I was just like you. This whole passage drips with irony to help us see that, look, 
Paul was these, these guys. He was the guy going after them. And now he is the one being arrested. Now he is the one being persecuted. Now he is the one who they want to kill. So he's like, look, I know, trust me. I learned at the feet of Gamaliel, the most uh, well-known scholar and teacher of the day. I was trained to be a Pharisee. I was trained to follow the law. I am you. And he kept reiterating this in different ways. He, he, he shows that even on the road to Damascus, he was blinded by God. He's on his way. He has papers to arrest Christians in Damascus, and he's blinded by God. And he falls down on his face, and he's blinded before him, scales in front of his eyes, and God said, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, Lord, who is this? And he says, this is Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And he's sent to Damascus and he's sent there to meet a man named Ananias. Ananias was sent to him. And it's interesting that in this passage in Acts 22, if you're following along kind of as we're summarizing, that Ananias, he mentions, was well thought of and well known among the Jews. Again, further connecting him with the Jews and his whole conversion experience with the Jews. He's well thought of and well spoken of. He wants them to know he was just like them. So Ananias is sent to speak to him, and he's sent to tell Paul about his mission, the mission that God had for him to share the gospel. Paul returns to Jerusalem, and then he further explains in Acts 22 that he encounters God in the temple. And God speaks to him in the temple, and that uh, he mentions that even God says the Jews are going to reject you. So he's speaking to a bunch of Jews that are trying to kill him, that he had to be torn away from by soldiers to save his life. And he's saying, yeah, it's happening. <laughs> exactly what God said would happen to me is happening and you're the ones doing it. And so he explains to them in this chapter, hey, I understand who you are. I understand your thoughts. I understand why you're doing this. I see your anger and your hatred. I was the same way. And God miraculously transformed my life through the power of Jesus Christ. And so he helps us see this and he helps these Jews see this. But if you look at the end or kind of near verse 21, he says that God told him that the Jews would reject him and that he will go to the Gentiles. This crowd was listening very carefully. They were hanging on Paul's every word. It even says that they were quiet. A huge crowd that wanted to kill him became silent and listening to his story. And as soon as he mentioned the name Gentiles, they went nuts. They went crazy. It absolutely pushed them over the edge. And as soon as he mentions this commissioning that he had, we see they just went crazy. Look at verse 22 uh, through 25. You actually uh, see him in, you know, just telling, telling them about what happened. Look at verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, 
Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? So they come to this situation. It's kind of crazy to think about. I mean, imagine yourself there in this situation. It almost reminds me of something I experience often with uh, our little 19-month-old who were in the last stages of adoption. Throwing stuff, spitting. Uh, you know, like the other day, uh, he, he had Noah, our, our five-year-old son, about this far between Pastor Gary and I. And he grabbed a big old car, not a matchbox, a big thing, and just chucked it at his brother. Whacked him right upside the head. And this is what we kind of imagine from like a 19-month-old or a two-year-old or even a three-year-old. But these are grown men. Look at what they do. They're throwing their coats. They're throwing them around. They're grabbing dust, flinging it in the air. I can imagine them almost like foaming at the mouth to kill this guy. And these are grown men just acting in this way. And it's kind of, you know, it's interesting for us to examine this and consider this hatred. This hatred that they have. It's just a, a, a powerful thing. And as we, we think about it, uh, we, we kind of do our best to examine the hatred and think of it in different ways. Uh, one might be, all right, let's think of hatred. Maybe the KKK has for African-Americans and over in the history of our, even our country, this immense hatred that they have and the, the despising nature of their words and their actions that are just horrific. Or even ISIS, where uh, you have ISIS just going around trying to kill Christians, literally hunting them down like animals because they hate them so much. But what we often do with this hatred and in these situations when we read Scripture, we often remove ourselves from that hatred. That's why we use examples that are maybe distant from us. Maybe they're not from you, but from me. And we distance themselves, we distance ourselves from it because oftentimes we don't want to imagine that same hatred existing within our own hearts. The potential in, in our sinful human nature to hate like these people. To hate like these Jews to the point that they wanted to kill this guy. They're throwing dirt in the air, throwing their coats around, screaming that he should die in the same way that they scream that Jesus should die. No, that hate doesn't exist in us, does it? The potential for hatred of that kind, no way does that exist in our own hearts, does it? But I would argue that it does. And I would encourage you, as I encouraged myself in reading this, to understand that potential for hatred exists within me as well. And the same Jesus that this ferocious mob rejected is the same Jesus we reject with our hatred of others. And something else uh, to notice in this passage is that uh, Paul spoke to this mob with passion, love, and conviction. If it was me up there in front of that mob, I'd probably scream back at him, you know, uh, just trying to point out things in them that were wrong and defending myself and saying, you guys are idiots, I'm right, you know, God is, is correct. And, he, and so he's up there in love, compassion, looking at them. He related his story to their exact experiences. He proved uh, that he was one of them. Yet they still rejected him and his message. And don't miss this. Ultimately, they were not rejecting Paul, but they were rejecting Jesus. This reminds us that the breakthrough and the power to bring someone to Christ only exists through God drawing them through the Spirit. 
Paul even says this in 1 Corinthians 2.4. It's not with persuasive words. It's not some eloquence that you have that is helping somebody, oh, I really talked them into the faith. If you talked them into it, someone's going to talk them out of it. And so Paul makes it very clear, even as our students got ready for impact this week, we reminded them that, hey, it's the power of the message of the gospel. It's not your words. It's not the things you memorize, although it's important to be prepared. It's the power of God through Christ Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit that draws people to himself. So we get back to the text and see what happens here in verse 26 at the end of 22. It says here that when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So there's a situation here that's kind of interesting. They arrest Paul. They decide that it's best to beat him, to ask him questions. Somehow the Romans had a good way of of doing these things. and, And they're like, hey, let's just abuse him to the point that he tells the truth. So they're stretching him out to be whipped. And Paul says, hey... Are you really going to whip a Roman citizen? The soldier's like, oh, hold on a second here. You know, let's stop this uh, situation from happening. And so the centurion passes the word along to the tribune. And then they compare citizenship credentials. It's kind of interesting. The tribune is saying, hey, um, I came to be a Roman by paying a large sum of money. You could become a Roman by paying money to the Roman government, and now you are a citizen, you have every right that every other citizen has. Well, Paul, he answers him one better, and he says, oh, well, I was born a Roman citizen. Not only am I a Jew, but I'm also born a Roman citizen. So he almost comes from way down here, and you got the Roman tribune up here. He not only becomes his equal, but he actually becomes his superior because of his birth. And so the conversation shifts a little bit here to somebody who's actually a peer and even a little bit higher than somebody uh, who was below him. So this Roman tribune, his name is Claudius Lysias. He had saved Paul from being ripped to shreds. He wanted to get to the bottom of why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So at the end of uh, chapter 22, he orders the highest ruling authority in Judaism to convene. So you have this council of people, the Sanhedrin. He orders them to come together and be able to meet with Paul and get to the bottom of what this whole hysteria craziness is. So this confrontation isn't something that just so happened here. This wasn't that Claudius Lysias was the guy who all of a sudden brought this conflict together. If we look way back in the book of Acts, we actually see this conflict has been brewing. This showdown has been brewing almost like a Wild West scene where eventually the two characters that were at odds are finally coming together to face one another. It's a showdown of epic proportions, including opposing belief systems, stubborn, devout men, convictions that each side would risk their very lives protecting. And so here you have it. In, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 23, you actually see Paul before the Sanhedrin. If you go to 23, starting in verse 1, 
You see, it says, in looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was in the high priest, for it is written, You should not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So this situation is kind of interesting. You see in verse 1, Paul looks intently at them. He gazes at this council. He looks at them intently with purpose and tells them, I have lived in all good conscience before God. And my initial reaction in, in reading that is like, why did they hit him in the face? He's just saying he's a good guy, right? He's just saying that you know, I'm kind of obedient. I, I, I try to live for God and no big deal. Why the harsh reaction to what Paul just said? And it's important for us to see if we look at what Paul's really saying is Paul is really saying that I am a great Jew. That I have followed what God has commanded. I've followed the law to the T. And guess what? In a way, I'm a better Jew than you. Oh, hold on a second. This guy who we want to kill, this guy who talks about Jesus being the way, the truth, and life, this guy who is coming at us with Christianity, he's the one saying that he's a great Jew. That caused Ananias to freak out a little bit and say, this guy needs to be punched. That's kind of interesting, the parallels with Paul's life and Jesus' life. Paul appears before this council. Jesus appeared before this council. When Jesus appeared before Caiaphas in John 8, he's standing there and he's ordered to be slapped. And if you look at the language of that text, he's actually ordered to just be smacked in the face. Now, obviously, just a slap is no big deal, right? I mean, a slap is a slap. It's still kind of uh, dehumanizing, right, and demeaning. But in this language, in Acts 23, Paul, it's a little bit different language. And he's actually, it says that he's uh, ordered to be punched with the intent to cause harm. With the intent to hurt him. And so he ticks them off so bad that even Ananias, the high priest, who knows the law better than anyone in that room except for Paul, says he needs to be hit. And Paul's like, wait a second. You just denied your own law by ordering me to be struck. So it's an interesting encounter that happens here. So how does Paul react? He reacts in anger. He calls Ananias a whitewashed tomb and he he actually, again, paralleled to Jesus who called the hypocrites and the Pharisees whitewashed tombs all the time. And he's like, Paul's carrying that same attitude toward them and he says, in anger, he's like, God's going to judge you. And interestingly enough, if you look at the history of this high priest, he and his brother were hunted down and killed like animals. So even in his anger, he was a little bit prophetic. God is going to judge you. You're going to have a a horrible death. And it's kind of interesting what happens. So you may ask, you know, why would Paul speak to the high priest this way? Well, there's some speculation of why that happened and why Paul would say that. Some speculate that because this council was ordered to convene quickly, that they weren't dressed in their 
uh, traditional robes and garb that he would be able to recognize the high priest for who he was. Some people say that because Paul had bad eyesight, he couldn't tell, but it really doesn't matter if you speculate all those things because you actually see that Paul does apologize. So he sees that he reacted in a way that didn't honor God. I don't know about you, but I've been punched in, in my face a few times in my life. I don't know, about, like I've missed out. I've never been punched in my face. Uh, I've been punched a few times. It's kind of uh, a tough situation when you're getting punched in the face. You know, I'll admit that I, I probably deserved every one of those times that I got hit. The worst time I can remember being hit in the face was my cousin who's about 6'5", 240 pounds. And I'm not going to go into detail of that story because it'll make me look even worse. Uh, but he's walking down the hall of our dorm and just as he's passing me, just hauls off and cracks me in my jaw. And I, you know, I thought my jaw was broken. And as I reacted, I can honestly say the first, second, and the following reactions to him were not godly in any way. So for someone to be punched in the face with the intent to harm, I can't necessarily expect them to act in a godly way, just like Paul, he acts, acts in a harsh way. It was understandable, but it was out of line, and that's why we see him apologizing. He even uses a common Jewish law in his apology. So we see Paul uh, among the people. We see him sharing his story in, in Acts 22, his miraculous conversion. Going from a man who hunted Christians down to persecute, imprison, and even kill them to a man who basically risked his life to share his faith and to share the gospel. We also have seen the first part of his trial before the Sanhedrin. Now let's look at the last part, this final part, where Paul shifts the argument from the law to the resurrection, the risen Savior. Look at uh, Acts 23, verses 6 through 10. Let's read those together. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring them into the barracks. So we see Paul here before the people. And... Uh, it's something almost humorous that happens here. You know, I get a chance to come up here three or four times a year, and I love being up here on the stage anytime I come up. And I often share about my life uh, growing up as a pastor's kid. I'm the youngest of four kids, and I'm well known in those circles as an annoying punk. And so my goal oftentimes growing up was to stir things up. I know none of you are like that, but that's how I was. And so I love to stir things up and, and kind of get under people's skin. You know, I, you know, even when things were quiet and going smoothly, I kind of found it my need to fix it. Something's not right. Everything's going well. Like even at Impact Camp this past week, 
everyone was pretty good. There were, wasn't many problems. I almost wanted to like go jump off the roof into the pool or something just to cause some problems. There was nothing to solve, you know? And so in this situation, I often felt it, 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 it my job to stir things up, which leads back to the probable cause for me being punched in the face many times. Uh, in addition, I often guess that junior high ministry is right where God meant for me all along. So with this unique skill set of stirring the pot, I often relate well to this passage. On the surface, it seems to me that Paul is just trying to get under their skin and get them to fight each other. What do you do when you're in trouble? You get the focus off yourself, right? If my sister Jenny and my brother Johnny are there in my presence and I'm in trouble, what am I going to do? Did you hear what they did? Did you see what they did? Get them fighting with one another so they don't go after me, right? And so on the surface, that's really kind of how I've always read this passage. Like Paul's just really just trying to stir him up. He's trying to get him to go at it because you see, actually, they don't believe the same thing about the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in angels and spirits and the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. They disagreed and so they start arguing with each other. But I don't think that's all. It's actually not all Paul was doing. He didn't want to just start an argument. There's a little bit more to that. He was actually redirecting the argument. You see, the reason why they were so angry at him, the reason why they were foaming at the mouth, throwing dirt in the air, throwing their coats around, trying to kill him, wasn't necessarily just about the temple and the law, but it was about the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. The offense that he was giving to the Jewish people wasn't just the law and the temple, but more importantly, it was the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 17 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Still in your sins. So it's important for us to see that without the resurrection, our faith is worthless. With no resurrection, then Christ wasn't raised. No resurrection, then we just wasted the last 30 minutes of our time together. Without the resurrection, we are a bunch of liars and we belong to a cult. Without the resurrection, our faith is worthless. and We're hopelessly lost in our sin. The power of the resurrection is what it's about. The power that Jesus Christ conquered the grave that God raised him up three days later after dying on the cross for our sins. That's where the argument is. That's where the power comes from. And so as I focus on God's word and go through a time of reading, um, I understand more and more as I get older that there's no accidents with God. His timing is perfect. And so as I was going through a Bible reading plan just last week at Impact Camp, came across this passage of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23 that we're going to read together shortly. This passage is full of hope as a result of the resurrection. 
But that same day, I came across some, some pretty sad news. That my mother-in-law, Candace's mom, is going to be placed in hospice care in her battle with cancer. And so as I read this scripture, the scripture came more alive to me because obviously the condition of what was going on. And so as I read this scripture, it was a difficult thing to handle. It brought an overwhelming feel of sorrow and pain. The brevity of life hit me like a ton of bricks. As I meditated on this passage, I just kept thinking that Carolyn has hope. That she has hope. Now, the hope may not be in physical healing, but God has the power to heal her right now, this very moment. I firmly believe that. But if God does not choose to heal her, she still has hope. She has better hope than if her physical body was healed because she will eventually die. We all will eventually die. Some think that we're a little superhuman, but we will eventually die. Our hope is not in our bodies. The hope is in the power of the resurrection. Her hope is in the resurrection. So when you experience these situations in your life, in your life like a lot of you have, the power of the resurrection comes alive. What you put your hope in is corrected from yourself and the things of this world and your family and your abilities. And it strips you down and helps you see the power is not in you at all. It wasn't in Paul at all. It's in the power of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we conclude, I'd like us to read together a passage of Scripture, this passage I just referred to in Ephesians chapter 1. You'll find it on the screen and also in your bulletin. And I know this is... uh, Attempting something uh, might be difficult for all of us to read together. I don't normally ask my junior high kids to do this because it's a big mess. But I think most of you can handle it. So what we're going to do in conclusion is just simply read this passage together and let the Holy Spirit speak to us in how to respond to this message. So let's read together starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray together. Dear God, we praise you for your word. We praise you for the testimony of Paul. 
the boldness and courage that he shared his story with only came from you. We understand as he faced death in the face that he could see the foundation of our faith, the resurrection. And as you bow your head and meditate even now on the things you've just heard, just take some time to close your eyes and think about your response to what you've heard. Maybe some of you are dealing with hatred and anger, uncontrollable rage sometimes. Take the time to confess that to Jesus. Some of you are stuck on the law. You, know, you're hard, you have a hard time accepting God's grace. You try to be obedient and it leaves you frustrated. Some of you lack knowledge of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection. and Maybe you need to spend time talking to God about that. And then many of us, we lay too many other foundations that are like sifting sand. And we haven't looked correctly at the resurrection. Lord God, I pray that you will convict us of our desire to do things our own way. Our desire to be religious and even to impress others with how we act. And in turn, stripping the gospel of its most important component, which is the risen Savior. Lord, convict those that may not know you or haven't embraced you as Savior and as Lord and as King. Convict them even now to trust in you and your risen Son as their Savior. We thank you for what you're going to do in our reflection time as we remember what Jesus did for us through communion. I pray that in response we will live for you and receive power through the resurrection. In your name we pray, amen.